Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Now, British scientists say decisions by European countries to stop giving AstraZeneca vaccines are, quote, baffling and reckless. Sweden, Germany and France have now joined other countries in halting vaccinations as a precaution because of concerns about blood clots. Well, the French President Emmanuel Macron made the announcement, despite assurances from the World Health Organization that the jab was safe. The decision which was taken in accordance with our European policy is to suspend vaccinations with AstraZeneca as a precaution, hoping to resume them quickly if the opinion of the EMA allows it. Now, European data shows 30 cases of clotting out of 5 million jabs given, but experts say that they would expect around 100 a week of those instances anyway in a population that size. Professor Anthony Harnden from the JCVI, which advises the UK government on vaccines, is urging people to still get the jab. What is quite remarkable is how effective these vaccines are. So there's a real chance for the world to really get vaccination against this coronavirus. And we really don't want to damage worldwide confidence by scare stories. Well, the European Medicines Agency will, on Thursday, issue its decision on the continued use of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And joining us now to discuss this further is Mike Amesbury, who's the Labour MP for Weaver Vale and the Shadow Housing and Planning Minister. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. Look, I know that you have a special interest in housing and I want to talk about the cladding crisis in the UK shortly. But first, I'd like to talk about the big story of the day, which is the vaccine rollout. I mean, in particular, what is your response to the crisis in the EU now? The rollout in your constituency, how is it going? Is there any dent in terms of reaching you know, reluctant patients, those hard-to-reach um, individuals that we need to get to in the UK? Look, it, it's going well. I mean, the vaccine rollout in, in my patch is probably ahead of ahead of schedule in terms of the priority groups. Um, um, I've had the, um, the very vaccine that you're referring to. So I've, 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 had, I've had the jab and, and certainly had... Um, had none of the side effects which have been referred to. Of course, put that into proportion, the evidence there, um, um, is that I think the numbers are probably around around 38, aren't they, where they're referring to uh, um, um, uh, blood clots. Um, um, and that's certainly actually below what, what you'd expect in terms of the norm. So I think it's, it's disputably evidence. Uh, I'm certainly reassured personally um, as a as a legislator, as a as a member of parliament, um, but our regulator has been clear as well, and I'd encourage people to 
you know, this is this is our this is our hope. This is the 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 shining light at the end of the tunnel um, as we transition out of a very difficult period in our history. Well, Mike, I mean, I mean, I've I've had the vaccine too, the same one, and uh, no problems for me. And, and I mean, in fact, the European Medicines Agency, the World Health Organization, they're all yeah. saying it's fine. And as you say, the instance isn't clear either because it's a fairly small number of cases. So. Would it be wrong then to read some politics into this and say, you know, there have been disputes, of course, with AstraZeneca, perhaps even post-Brexit frustrations coming through. Is it reasonable to read some of that into what's going on? Well, I, I, I certainly can't speak to, in terms of, uh, on behalf of our, our European neighbours and friends, um, but I'm reassured millions of people in this country have already had um, um, largely the first dose of the vaccine. Um, and we've had issues from time to time in terms of, of, of supply. That's probably the, 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 the only uh, niggle so, so far. But again, I've put that message across to people that, that actually, you know, this is, this is safe. World Health Organization, as you rightly say, our own regulator and as people um certainly in other parts of the globe uh, are, are marching forward and indeed want more supplies mm. do you think that there's any risk though that anti-vaxxers will get a boost from this or e- indeed just people who are you know worried concerned reluctant for various reasons um look there, there's there, there's all there's always that risk isn't there but it's it's a essential actually we um Argue from a, an evidence and data perspective. You know, I've I've referred to the fact that, that I've had it very very importantly. Millions of other people have had it, and and, and the evidence is is pretty clear actually that actually issues around um, and blood blood clots are actually lower than you expect in the general population. Mm. Let me ask you then about uh, your, obviously, an area of which is a huge concern to you, of course, and, and given the brief that you have as well, particularly, and that's the issue of cladding. It's, it's uh, since the Grenfell House fire, the terrible fire, it's been an issue that's really hung around the necks of, of government, obviously, and also the people who live in places where there is still questionable cladding. The government's pledged £1.6 billion to fund repairs, but only for buildings over 18 metres high. I mean, the real cost estimated to run at many times that. So what is needed from now? The the only way to deal with this is nearly four years on from Grenfell, where tragically 72 people lost their lives, the government still hasn't done a risk-based assessment of, of, of buildings. I mean, this has happened in, you know, I can cite Victoria, Australia from the word go. They set up um, um, a cladding task force, so to basically turbocharge the, the, the whole process. So they identified those at risk, set up a task force, and actually funded up front. That was the quickest way. So the government intervenes, funds up front and then you recover with that polluter pays principle i mean the the the, the government mm. of a, a an interesting funding mix at the moment they're talking of a, an element of a, a of a levy on the on the construction industry um estimated to be around 200 million a year around 2 billion over over a, a 10 day uh, 10 sorry 10 year period um, but it's, it, it's nowhere near sufficient in terms of the mix. Um, 
he cited there the the overall cost. There's a number of figures out there. The select committee spoke about 15 billion. Um, um, the total mix going in terms of funding at the moment is probably in the region of uh, under five billion. Yeah, um, but then uh, the, you know the industry is not happy with that, obviously, because it's not simply the cladding. There was a whole process that went into the Grenfell Tower disaster. I mean, there were also safety infect- inspections that um, uh, you know revealed violations too. So there's a, there's a question mark about that. And then you know the idea also that um, perhaps you would have leaseholders being lent the money. You know that that's been sort of dubbed a kind of cladding tax because they would simply pass that on to homeowners i mean it's surely the cost that is the issue and simply the extent also of the number of buildings that need to be dealt with that is that is so difficult to, to handle you, you you're exactly right and the, the cladding tax is uh, certainly something i've used at the dispatch box um despite um, promising the government ministers including the Secretary of State and um, the Housing Minister Chris Pincher on 17 different occasions that leaseholders would be protected from uh, remedial um, historical costs. Um, um, then that's not happened. That promise has been broken. And now those in buildings below 18 metres will be faced with a loan. That's a, a loan, a charge on top of the service charge on top of the mortgages, on top of the astronomical insurance premiums that have been uh, landed on their on their doormats, um, um, it, it it really is a living nightmare for hundreds of thousands of, of people that are living in these buildings. But the problem is that, as you say, these buildings are are, are very difficult to be to be in, and people are stuck in them. Is it an amount of building a better set of buildings people can move into? Is that the, the real answer going forward? No, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, this has been a, a, a failure of um, a regulatory regime over a, over a number of years. And, and, and industry, the broader industry, I mean, Karen is right to pick up on that, on, on that point. It's not, not just about those in, in construction. Um, but going forward, yes. Essentially, you've got to build safe buildings. There is a piece of legislation which I look forward to it arriving in 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 Parliament. I would hope pretty pretty soon, which is the Building Safety Bill. Um, um, have a, a number of issues with that at the moment. It certainly seems to lack detail in terms of the primary legislation, relying a lot on secondary legislation going forward. Mm. And there's a very controversial aspect called the building safety charge, which will be another charge um, put on the shoulders um, of leaseholders. So that's the clause 88 and 89, very, very controversial. That's something that certainly we as Her Majesty's official opposition will not accept. Uh, and yet, of course, the issue at the moment for your party overall is that you're slipping back in polls. Boris Johnson is incredibly popular. And the messages from the Labour Party don't seem to be hitting home with voters, do they? Um, I would say, I mean, if you want to refer to this uh, specific building safety crisis and the cladding crisis, I think actually um, we are working together with, 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 with campaigners um, dragging the government kicking and screaming and getting them closer to the right place. We've still got some some way yeah. to go. I mean, you mentioned there the announcement in terms of the financial package just before the 
before the budget. We're still away the details there. Undoubtedly, in the polls, we've had um, spoke about that, that you know, light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the vaccine. Uh, there's a balance there. But, you know, pe- people aren't filled. It's not Boris Johnson and well, Tory MPs jobbing people. <laughs> it's, okay. it's our NHS and volunteers. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we start, Caroline, with Brexit. Yes, because the European Union is starting legal action against the UK over how the trade deal is being implemented. So last week, the government unilaterally pushed back the date that full checks on goods brought into Northern Ireland uh, are going to be imposed. The Prime Minister says that the process being set up essentially needs to work for goods going from Great Britain as well. It should guarantee uh, not just trade and movement north-south, but east-west as well. And, and that's all we're, we're trying to sort out with some uh, temporary and, and technical measures, which we think are very sensible. The Prime Minister there. Well, the move by the EU could ultimately lead to financial penalties and trade tariffs being imposed on the UK. Now, meanwhile, plainclothes police officers could soon be patrolling bars and nightclubs around the country as part of plans to protect women from predatory offenders. Following a meeting of the government's Crime and Justice Task Force, Downing Street said it was taking a series of immediate steps to improve security. Among them is a pilot programme where uniformed and plainclothes officers seek to identify offenders in the nighttime economy. Other steps include a doubling of the Safer Streets Fund, which provides neighbourhood measures such as better lighting and CCTV, to £45 million. Well, it comes as MPs today have their first vote on controversial legislation, which would give the police more powers to crack down on demonstrations. The Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill has come under scrutiny following police handling of the vigil for Sarah Everard on Saturday. Ruth Edwards, a Conservative MP on the Home Affairs Select Committee, says that the two issues are separate. One is the way... Um, that the police are interpreting um, coronavirus restrictions. And one is looking at future legislation around protests to make sure that, yes, people are allowed their say, but also that the functioning of our democracy, vital public services are not impeded. Now, Labour says that it is going to vote against those measures. Now, during the lengthy and painful Brexit discussions, the government was always keen to say that the UK would become free to reshape its position in the world. Not a superpower, but also not an insignificant presence on the world stage. Well, today, 
we get a sense of what they mean with the publication of the year-long review of foreign and defence policy called Global Britain in a Competitive Age. Now, the government wants to reshape what it calls an outdated international system. It's shifting its focus towards the Indo-Pacific area. It's also dramatically altering the shape of the armed forces, and it's being seen as the most radical reassessment of Britain's place in the world since the end of the Cold War. Well, joining us now is Dr Jack Watling, who's a research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Jack Thanks for being with us today. Um, how radical a change is all this? I, I think we can overdo the kind of radical uh, framing in the sense that the document talks about a tilt towards the Indo-Pacific. So it recognises that there is uh, an increased level of political and economic activity that is central to the Indo-Pacific. It recognises that we have partners and allies in the region, not least uh, South Korea, Australia, uh, Japan, um, and it tries to strengthen the relationships that we have in that area. But in terms of the security threat, it is very, very clear that our primary hostile state threat comes from Russia. And so there is still a significant emphasis placed on our established and existing commitments in Europe. Yeah, interesting. Um, uh, well, on that question, uh, you know, as we're kind of um, thinking about this, is it right then to identify those sorts of foes so clearly? I mean, Russia as a clear enemy, but then China as a commercial rival? I mean, I think it's very evident that China has been uh, engaging in some quite, um, should we say, coercive activity in the Indo-Pacific towards its neighbours. It's been... Uh, contesting Indian territory in the last few months. We've already seen it breaking its commitments uh, under international treaty towards Hong Kong. Um, and therefore, China is flexing its muscles. Uh, in a military sense, it is expanding its capabilities quite substantially. And so I think that the review is right to highlight that China is going to be a long-term and significant challenge. Um, but that doesn't mean that China poses a direct military threat to the United Kingdom. Whereas Russia has recently conducted a, a chemical weapons attack on British soil that killed a British civilian. So I think it's right to frame those two challenges differently. But at the same time, we are, as I said in my introduction, a kind of medium-sized power. If we're moving our interests uh, in some form towards Indo-Pacific, can we still really meet our NATO commitments more in the European sphere? Is it possible to do all that at the same time? It's going to be a real challenge. Um, I think you know, if, we, if we look at the, the policy of sending naval assets into the Indo-Pacific, um, it usually takes four to one as the ratio between the number of ships you have and the number that you can sustain deployed at sea. Uh, and so if we are going to have that as a long-term presence rather than just you know, occasionally showing up to wave the flag, then that is a major drain or draw on uh, our naval resources. At the same time, of course, um, there is a decision to be made about how much of the force we, we keep there um, and whether that is something that the Navy leads on, whereas other elements of the force are focused on Europe. I think we'll see a lot of the detail unpacked next week when the defence white paper comes out, uh, and we'll have to go through the sums very carefully. But it is certainly a difficult tension to balance. Yeah, OK. Well, speaking of those sums, um, there was an announcement of a £16.5 billion increase in defence spending. Now we're getting more details. The plan does seem to be to cut back on personnel 
and move heavily into tech. I mean, perhaps some people will say that that's inevitable, but it doesn't seem popular either with defence chiefs or with our, you know, chief allies, still the United States. The MOD has had a very, very large black hole in its budget for some time now. And so a lot of the additional funding that was announced uh, would have simply covered what was we were already committed to. And in that sense, if they wanted to invest in new capabilities, then there wasn't any money available to invest in those new capabilities without cutting some of what was already in place. Um, and so that's why we're in that position. But it is certainly true that uh, you can't cut back on numbers and expect to be able to maintain the same level of presence and deployability. Um, there is a direct correlation there. And so we will have to be very selective about where we apply our resources. Um, and I think you know the army is looking at restructuring itself quite significantly in order to have more smaller deployable units so that it can sustain those points of presence around the world. But, Jack, isn't there really a bit of a, a dilemma here? Because uh, one of the things that Britain has been good at in the past, we're not, a, a, say, a superpower. We probably can't compete, in fact, uh, with Russia or China or the United States in terms of our technical uh, spend on, on, on the equipment. But what we can do is have a presence. We can have a group of troops on site with a flag, showing the flag, in fact. And aren't we really cutting back on that and trying to compete with the big boys in a way we can't really do? Um, I, I mean, Russia, Russia is very, very significant in its capability around its immediate borders. But as soon as you get further away from Russia, it actually has a similarly deployable footprint to the UK and then actually slightly less in, say, its naval capability. So I think we can compete with certain actors. Um, and the other thing I'd flag is that there's not much point showing up and waving the flag if you can't do anything, if, you know, who you're, who you're confronting in that area decides to uh, not be very amenable to your presence. Um, so you do need equipment and you do need some of those higher end capabilities if you are going to make your presence meaningful. Hmm. But there is a kind of big debate, isn't there, going on, um, I mean, within Britain, uh, sort of propelled partly by Brexit about our role in, in the world. You know, Is it simply too ambitious for the kind of post-imperial, post-Brexit power that we are, mid-level power, um, you know, are we hoping in a way for, for, for too much? Uh, to be honest, I think the UK always gets tied up in this kind of navel-gazing debate about how important <laughs> we are. Uh, and, you know, if it, it really doesn't matter, to be honest, right? The, the important thing is what commitments have we made to our partners and allies, and can we meet those commitments? Hmm. Um, and whether that puts us fourth on the list or fifth on the list is is really immaterial. Um, you know, so I think we need to move the conversation on from where we are in the global rankings and instead make sure that when we make commitments to other countries, whether that's to NATO um, or whether that's to allies in the Indo-Pacific, that we are able to show up with what we've promised. I'm getting a sense, Jack, that you, you, you kind of think this is probably on the right lines. But isn't there an issue here? This review was started a year ago. Uh, the world was a very different place then. We'd only sort of begun the COVID experience. Uh, is there a sense of perhaps going back over it and rethinking a bit in the light of the way in which things have shifted in the interim? Uh, I think it's very important that we don't see the review as the final product, um, because 
essentially what we've seen this week is the foreign policy analysis. A lot of that was uh, research was done over the summer. Uh, it was kind of drawn together of the autumn and then lots of arguments happened in government as it was written in the last couple of months. Um, and so actually, I think it is quite reflective of um, the, as the world as it is now. Um, I think the foreign policy vision is relatively clear. Um, but as I say, the important bit is, are we able to back up the commitments we're making with resource and with, you know, hard, clear commitments? Um, and that will be determined by what we do with the money that we're putting in and, you know, what troops we have and where we decide to put them. And so those are questions that will be outlined in terms of the strategy next week and then will have to be implemented over the next couple of years. And so whether this is a success or not really comes down to the next 24, 48 months, um, you know, and, and what is done. It shouldn't be seen as, right, done and dusted, move on. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.